was a wedding feast once in the town of Cana, the story goes, and like all wedding feasts in all towns, it was a great occasion. The bride's family was there, and the bridegroom's family was there, the poor relations and the rich relations, the eccentric aunts and the harried uncles, and as many cousins and friends and assorted well-wishers as the traffic could bear, with the oldest ones resting their bones in the caterer's folding chairs on the sidelines, and the youngest ones skittering around underfoot and driving everyone more or less mad. And because it seems that Cana was only a few miles from the town of Nazareth, Mary was there, Joseph the carpenter's wife, and Jesus of Nazareth was there too, standing with the rest of them in the midst of the eating and the drinking and the general carrying on with his glass held at shoulder level to keep it from being jostled out of his hand and straining to catch what his mother was trying to say to him above all the racket. Well, that's not my description. It comes from Fred Beekner in a room called Remember. But the way he writes makes me feel like I'm there. It takes, I think, all of us back to our own times of celebration. And put yourself in that place and imagine that just as the party gets into full swing and just as the dancing's about to begin, the wine runs out. Of course, you can have a perfectly good party without the wine, but think of how embarrassed the host would be. I mean, how would you feel? <coughs> Mary knows how the host will feel. Maybe they've been good friends, maybe kin. So she decides to do something about it. And catching Jesus' eye, she calls him over and explains the predicament. Why is that our problem, he asks. Does he think she's being a busybody? Overly responsible? Does he resent her pushing him into something he's really not quite ready to do yet? You know how it goes, oh, my little boy takes piano lessons. Quiet everybody and he'll play. <laughs> Who knows? But Mary's not about to be put off. And she tells the servants to do whatever Jesus tells them. And I suspect that when Jesus tells the servants to fill the jars with water and pass it off as wine, the servants figure, oh, well, everybody's high enough and drunk enough. They won't know the difference. Or if they do, they'll pretend so they don't embarrass the hosts. And imagine everyone's surprise when the contents of the jars turns out to be wine, really good wine, not the cheap stuff. Six jars of wonderful wine. Six jars holding 20 or 30 gallons each. We just saw how big that is. 150 gallons of wine. There weren't enough people in the whole town to drink all that. And John says it was the first of Jesus' signs. And John uses a word that doesn't mean miracle. It means signs. And what does he mean? He means that what Jesus does tells us something about him. A sign points to something else. And this action points beyond itself to a deeper truth. John says there's a whole lot more to this story than just wonderful wine. So what does it tell us? The obvious is that there's a change that takes place within those old stone jars. Jews did and still have a number of purification rites. And washing hands before a meal isn't just for sanitation. It has religious significance. And that's only one, for instance. All they have to do, and all of these rituals have to do with the understanding that we come into God's presence soiled in some way. The dirt of daily living, of our own humanness, 
has to be washed off. And you know I'm not just talking about physical dirt. And every religion has a way to cope with that in some way. It's one of the main functions of all religions. How are we absolved of that deeply ingrained human tendency to mess up our lives and the lives of people around us? Now, at this point, it's really very tempting to kind of go off into the condemnations of the Jewish legal system and extol Christianity as a great contrast to that. The trouble is that really oversimplifies the Jewish understanding. And listening to that, we can feel, you know, it's easy to fall into the feeling of very smug about all of this. But the reality is that every one of us thinks we can do our own something to clean up our act. Even more, we're very prone to thinking we can do things that will make God think well of us. We all have our own rituals to absolve ourselves and clean off the dirt. So before we start talking about how they didn't understand, we need to be honest to know that most of the time we don't understand either. In contrast to that old water of purification into which we all try to dip our hands, comes this incredible abundance of wine that no one expects and no one deserves. What has happened is transformation. It isn't just that the water tastes like wine. The water is wine. It's something new, something different. And that is what Jesus wants from every one of us. He wants us to be transformed. You know, not just shaped up, but different. New women, new men. And you know that when things start to go wrong, there are usually two choices. One is to kind of tinker with it. You know, make an adjustment here, a little change there. The other is to just throw it out and start all over again. Jesus says that left to our own devices, human beings are so flawed, and the world we have created is so flawed that we have to find a different way to do things. We can't just make a few adjustments here or there. We have to start over. One of the men in my church in Wilmington once said what an important influence that pastor who'd preceded me had been in his life. He said I was like everybody else, working my way up the corporate ladder, trying to get ahead. But Tom helped me see the world differently. He helped me to find a different set of values. Or take the story of another man there whose alcoholism had so destroyed his judgment, he actually found himself in jail for armed robbery. And he knows that only through a higher power, which he knows to be Jesus, has his life been rebuilt in a totally different way. Now that's what transformation is about. It's dramatic sometimes, And sometimes it takes place so slowly over a period of years that it's only later that we look back and realize just how different we have become. Most of us don't do very well with that kind of change by ourselves. We need folk who will hold out a different vision of what can be. We need folk who are on the journey with us, hold our hands and support us, folk who prod us along and keep us at the task. Above all, we need to be with folk who know even better than we do that we can't make those changes by ourselves. Those changes are made within us 
by the one who constantly changes the water of everyday life into the wonderful wine of grace. I think helping folk make that kind of change is one of the tasks of the church. And it's the challenge that I offer to each and every one of you who are in leadership roles. You are here not just to attend meetings or head a ministry. You are here to help us all find and live that new life. Drink the new wine that Jesus offers. Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, and yet sometimes we know that it has come. The wine is there. We see it and we taste it in our lives. What will be already is, even if only for a moment. And we long for the day when we and our world are indeed truly transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And the party will go on and on and on with the abundance of his grace. Thanks be to God. Amen.